What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to this week's episode of Burn It All Down. It's the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Brenda Elsie, Associate Professor of History at Hofstra University in New York, and this week the gang's all here. That includes my fellow historian, the brilliant Dr. Amira Rose Davis, Assistant Professor of History and Women's and Gender Sexuality Studies at Penn State, Jessica Luther, Independent Journalist, Weightlifter, PhD Candidate, and Baker in Austin, Texas. The great wordsmith and dog whisperer, Lindsay Gibbs, sports reporter at Think Progress in DC, and the fierce Shireen Ahmed, freelancer, activist, and the world's snuggliest in Toronto, Canada. Before we start, I would like to thank our Patreons for their generous support and to remind our flamethrowers about our Patreon campaign. You can pledge a certain amount monthly to become an official patron of this podcast, and in exchange for your monthly contribution, you get access to special rewards. Burn It All Down is a labor of love, and we believe in this podcast, but having a producer, for example, to help us grow would be extra amazing. We are so grateful for your support and happy that our flamethrowing family is growing. We have a kick-ass show for you this week. On this episode, number 107, we will discuss and preview groups A, B, and C of the Women's World Cup in France. We interview Sissy, the legendary player from Brazil and Golden Boot winner of the 1999 Women's World Cup about her recollections, the progress or lack thereof that Brazil has made, and gender equality in the sport. And we will also talk WNBA news. But before all that, what's going on? I, I think, okay... We have the NBA, we have the NHL, things are happening there. We all know that Amira's got to have some glow time here. So I'm just going to I'm just going to start there. Amira, how are you feeling? I'm feeling, well, to be honest. Tell listeners why you're happy, I guess. Okay, but can I just start by saying that the Celtics ruined our chance for complete and utter world domination. So, um, <laughs> U.S. domination, Amira. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Whatever. <laughs> but my point is that they irritate me. Anyways, that aside, <laughs> look at the Bruins, y'all. I said this like three episodes ago that the topsy turvy first round of the NHL playoffs made it a fairly easy. <laughs> path back to the finals for the Bruins and but I did not think that that would include a sweep which it did (laughs) games were not really even that close besides the first one but that ended up being five two we get it it. this is professional (laughs) preview of the cup thank you very much I'm being (laughs) so unbiased I'm salty because the sweep was against the Hurricanes. But I do say the bunch of jerks, the Carolina Hurricanes, way overachieved this year. What a fun team. The the future for the bunch of jerks. I know, me and Lindsay had a a very short 
competition. But I didn't <laughs> I didn't troll you, Linz. I didn't text you. I didn't I was so good. There wasn't any need to troll me. <laughs> <laughs> I thought about texting. The, the actual result was I know, trolling I thought about enough. texting you after the I first know you game. Thought and about then texting. I was like, uh, and then after the second game, it was so bad. Then I was like, yeah. I'm just going to not. I feel like this is sort of I passive trolling did right not now. Bring it up. <laughs> it, it's not even. It's not even really that passive, uh, Brenda. It's not even really that passive. <laughs> I, I appreciate Amira holding back on, and like if it was me, I'd be all up in your faces about you know Montreal winning, which they didn't come close to. They didn't make playoffs, but I appreciate that. I still will support you far more on your baseball than I will ever on hockey in Boston. But I love you, and that's it. Jess, do you have any NBA feelings right now? Well, not really. And that I don't, you know, I don't really follow the playoffs for the NHL and NBA. But I did want to say that I caught this week this really sweet thing that happened on the jump that made me very happy. I was in a restaurant and I looked up and I read the Chiron and I was like, oh, I know exactly what that's about because it said, I'm trying, Jennifer is in studio or whatever. And they had CJ Collum of the Trailblazers. I don't know if anyone's seen this. It's the one of the best tweets it's ever. so good. Um, he was tweeting about how good his team is a couple years ago, right? Two or three years ago. And last, last year. year. And Jennifer Williams, this woman who lives in Chicago, responded to the tweet saying, win a playoff game, then talk. And he wrote back to her in this now famous response, quote, I'm trying, Jennifer. Which is like <laughs> the sweetest thing. And so credit to The Jump and Rachel Nichols because they had Jennifer there um, oh, on the set. And CJ Collum walked up behind her and they laughed and hugged. And then when Rachel asked, like, is there anything you want to say to Jennifer? CJ Collum wrote, thank you. I appreciate you. And then they laughed and, and they shook hands. And it was just really sweet because that just like how earnest the I'm trying Jennifer tweet is like you can read it in there and so i just love that the jump had the two of them meet and it was just funny being in the restaurant and i was like oh my gosh and aaron of course had no idea what it was so i was like getting to explain it over dinner so that was my fun mba thing trying to explain twitter happenings to like it's the worst i know but i really was like this is a good one i'm gonna do it (laughs) and now on to the show At Burn It All Down, we are so excited about the Women's World Cup. So excited that over the next weeks, we will be sure that we spend plenty of time previewing and then experiencing and responding to what's going to be a really exceptional and interesting tournament for sure. And in that vein, we want to give a little preview to the groups. We're going to start this week with the first three, A, B, and C. And we have Amira starting off to give us a little bit of a rundown on Group A. Amira? (laughs) Happy to start. So Group A features host country France, along with Norway, Nigeria, and Korea. And I'm going to start today with Korea. Korea is certainly seen as the underdogs in this group. This is their third World Cup appearance. They came on the scene in 2003, and then they followed that up with 2015, so the last World Cup. It was the first time they'd reached the knockout stage. They made it to the round of 16 in 2015, and they notched their first ever World Cup victory with a 2-1 win over Spain that same year. So they are underdogs, but they are uh, every time they get to the World Cup, they're building on new successes and reaching new heights. 
They're known for the defensive style and their discipline. Although that's kind of what they're known for is their defense, the two players I did want to highlight for you all are both strikers, are both offensive players. First, Ji Soyun, who is definitely their key player to watch. She's the leading scorer for the Federation, and she also plays for Chelsea. You might be familiar with her there for her overseas play. She's not the only striker to keep your eye on when you're looking at Korea. You should also look out for Yeo Minji, who is a dominant striker. And actually back in 2010, Korea had this fairy tale Cinderella really awesome win at the U-17 Women's World Cup in Trinidad and Tobago. And she received both the Golden Boot and the Golden Globe back in 2010. Now, unfortunately, an injury took her out of the 2015 Women's World Cup. So she has yet to play at the major level with her national team. And so this is a kind of return for her. And she's very excited. She said, listen, I know the draw we got. I know the team that we're with, the teams we're facing. And I don't expect it to be easy. It will be tough, but anything is possible. Next, we turn to Nigeria, where the Super Falcons have long had a hold um, on the continent of Africa and the competition there. They won their ninth Women's Africa Cup this past year, um, although it was a harder go this time, as I'm sure one of my co-hosts will preview when we get to South Africa. Um, they really had to battle some up-and-coming teams. But if you remember that two years ago, The Super Falcons did a very public protest with support by many people in Nigeria on Twitter. People were trending, support our Super Falcons. A very public protest when following their seventh or eighth title, they were saying, hey, we're not getting paid. They were owed back payments. There was a kind of standoff discrepancy between the sports ministry and the um, local football federation that resulted in people not getting paid. There was certainly not payment being made to the Super Eagles, to the men's side. And so, as we know, women are usually going to suffer disproportionate amounts in terms of athletic allocation. And that was no different there. And so this very public protest resulted in a lot of kind of public shaming about the fact that the Super Falcons were really dominant and not getting compensation, not getting paid. There wasn't investment being put in them despite their successes. And so there has been efforts by their federation and the sports ministry to really kind of prepare repair that public perception but it resulted in the team really not playing for a whole year and not having a coach for a year so they appointed thomas den denerby um, who's a swedish coach back in 2018 so this is a kind of fresh squad it's a just back together after some turmoil so it'll be very interesting to see what the super falcons bring to the world cup this year now as dominant as they have been in play in the africa cup it's not really translated into a deep run in at the women's world cup so we'll see if this is the year they can really break in they are led and known by their kind of scoring attack uh, and their speed, led, of course, by Aziat Oshola, who is a striker. She is a three-time African Player of the Year. Um, back in 2014, she played with the U20 
women's in the women's world cup where they were finalists where she won the golden boot as well as the golden goal so she is definitely a player to watch and keep your eyes on and we'll see what this squad does i know they have many supporters cheering for them both in nigeria and around the diaspora next up is norway Uh, Norway has been to every Women's World Cup. They won the 1995 World Cup, but since then um, have struggled to get back to the finals. Uh, In the last few World Cups, they've gotten as close as fourth place. But in 2015, they didn't get out of the round of 16. And that they're going to have a harder time this year because they're certainly missing the most high-profile, prolific player for the Norway national team, the one and only Ada Hergerberg. So Ada, if you remember, recent Ballon d'Or winner, um, plays for LO, just got a hat trick this week in the Champ League's final premier player who stopped playing for her national team in 2017. And she's never given straight up play-by-play reason. However, when she did stop playing, she expressed the disgruntlement in the compensation given to the men's side versus the women's side. In fact, she stopped playing for them in September of 2017, um, kind of loosely citing this disparity. And in October of 2017, the Federation announced that they were taking some compensation from the men's side to up compensation for the women to bring it closer to 50-50. And although they say, oh, it's not a reaction to Ada, it seems to have been. It also didn't sway her. So... She's not playing in the Women's World Cup for Norway. The Norwegian team has said, listen, we're focusing on the players we have here in front of us and Otto doesn't want to play for us, so we're not playing. And, you know, recently some of her contemporaries on the United States um, and other people across the globe were saying, once again, why isn't she playing? Heather O'Reilly tweeted, I don't mean to beat a dead horse, but if Messi or Ronaldo opted not to play in a World Cup, the world would know why with clarity. And so um, what they're pointing to is the fact that she's never really specified, but she has given answers about what she sees as a lack of investment from the youth level on up in the girls and women's side of football in Norway. Um, And she said, quote, you know, I've been really honest with the national team representative that I feel like it's not it's not good enough. She later said, look, I've always respected men footballers for what they earn, but the gap is enormous um, and you need to give young women and girls the same opportunity. There are federations, there are clubs, there are men in high positions who have had the responsibilities to put, put women in the right, right place. And I think, I feel, I know we have a long way to go. So it'll be interesting to watch this continue to play out. But in her absence, a lot of the leadership on the Norway squad falls to Marin Meldy, who's a defensive midfielder and doesn't bring the same scoring threat by, you know, by any means that Ada does, but certainly is the kind of defensive mind and controller on the pitch for Norway. So uh, she will shoulder a lot of the leadership and we'll see what Norway does. And lastly, that brings us to host nation France. So obviously they automatically qualified because they are the host nation. However, even without that, they're one of the top 
clubs in the world. This squad in particular is um, amplifying the growth of women's soccer in France, as noted by the fact that their coach, Corinne Descartes, just did a live announcement of the roster last week, which is the first time that they've ever had a live presser for the announcement of a women's world roster in France. The roster contained few surprises. Um, they have a dominant squad, mostly coming from the most one of the most dominant teams across sports, across the world, the Olympic Lyonnais, LO. They are, if you don't know, look them up. They just won Champs League again yesterday. As I mentioned, Ada scored the hat trick. But on the French squad, they have seven, seven players from this dominant team, including their stars, Wendy Renard, Amadine Henri, and their star striker, Eugenine Lesamera, who all are returning players, their experienced squad. They have nine returning players from 2015. So there's not really any surprises. There's a little bit of a dust up. Some people thought that they have a young striker and a top scorer, Marie Antoinette Catoso, who many thought would make the squad because she has a lot of experience and she's really good in league play. She's had some inconsistently on the national team appearances and her and Descartes had kind of kind of public tension when Descartes said, you know, she needs to get her priorities in order. She kind of questioned her focus publicly. And so she, uh, Marie Antoinette was left off the squad. The coach said, listen, she's enormous potential. She's still young now. She got her life ahead of her. We're going to have amazing experiences in the year to come, but she was lacking something. So I made a hard choice. Um, So that's the one kind of thing that caused people to mm, pause a little bit. But generally the roster is you know, stocked full of people. Now, this is a squad that has always been good, but not great. They've always been a threat, but never too threatening. They've never, you know, done better than quarterfinals. And they've always been one of the teams to watch for and never have seemed to break through. But perhaps this is the year that that changes. Um, Of course, with the men winning the the, the cup last summer, the football gods, the fever might be in the air, but also because this team is just on an amazing winning streak. They won nine of their last 10, um, including besting both the United States and Japan 3-1 within that time frame. Their only loss in their last 10 games have come at 1-0 defeat by Germany. Um, and more importantly, within those 10 games, they outscored opponents 32-4. to They've only conceded four goals in their last 10 games. And so, you know, perhaps this is the year, especially with Ada out, perhaps this is the year that they break through. And maybe the home soil, maybe home turf will help them do that. They're a quick team. They're a fast team. They have a lot of weapons. It'll be very interesting to see if perhaps this is the year they get it done. Thanks, Amira. That's exciting. Shireen, you want to catch us up on Group B? Yes. Thanks, Bren. So Group B, we've got Germany, China, Spain, and South Africa. So I'm going to do a little rundown pretty quickly of each team and just sort of give you my personal insights because, of course, I will. First of all, FIFA rankings are total bullshit. And I give you this because not just because I defer to one of the most brilliant minds in football, Dr. Brenda Elsie, but because Germany is ranked two. Now, I know y'all are sitting there going, but they won the Women's World Cup in 2003 and 2007. Yes, but that's pretty much where that ends and that whole 
Sylvia and I, it was a long time ago. And so I think it's embarrassing. Don't get me wrong. There are some really fantastic players, notably Jennifer Marozan, who just won with Lyon yesterday. They also have Caroline Simon. The rest of their squad actually plays in the Bundesliga, the Femme League in Germany. And I think this is really important to see. A lot of people have said in, in the Twitterverse, the soccer Twitterverse, that they're an up-and-coming team. And I'm sort of like, what do you mean up-and-coming? Like, Germany is actually a very interesting team in that their federation isn't the worst of the worst. I mean, I know we're not, the bar is not high for supporting women's football by federations, but they really haven't developed in the way that you think they should, considering their women's Football actually have development programs like Bayern Munich has a program for girls. And it's sort of like, okay, where are we? So, and I will forever miss Nadine Ingerer. And I'm just going to say that. So we're going to go into China, which is actually ranked number 16. And China is really interesting. They were most notably known in the United States for being runners up in 99. And we don't hear enough about China. I think that their, I mean, their coaching is is by Jia, Jia Kwan. And they most recently won the Four Nations Cup which is not a huge tournament, but in, you know, considering there's not a lot of teams that participate in international tournaments like this pre-World Cup, it's pretty notable. One of their most famous players and the only one of their squad that plays outside of China is Wang Shuang, who is plays for Paris Saint-Germain in, in, in France. She's the first Chinese player to ever score in a Champs League. So that's pretty that's pretty notable. I think that there's, a, for me, I'm very excited. I think it's one of the matches I'm hoping to actually catch while I'm there. And I want to see them play. They're tactically very strong. They're like not like the Nadasheko, but they're tactically, there's a lot, a lot, they're ball control. Control. Tactical playing is a big part of the way China moves. And it'll be really interesting to see that. That's why this group is so interesting, because it's very different styles of play throughout. Our second European team in Group B is Spain, coached by Jorge Vilda. And I think that that's really interesting. They actually, their captain is Marta Turejan, who also plays. And I think one of the things for me about this team is that the Spain women's national football team really had a difficult time. They went through incredible amounts of difficulty, like we see in most federations, of having to come up with nothing, no support, lack of acknowledgement, even minimal equipment. And Unfortunately, the, the men's side gets, you know, their, their uh, World Cup winners, but are touted with so much support despite their absolutely dismal performance in Rio. So I think this is something that is, is we're going to see them up and coming. They have some very notable youth players that are coming up. And this is very, very important to keep in mind, um, as does China. Their, their youth teams are, are, are really notable and always make the semis in, in, in the under like 17, under 20s. So that's something else that I wanted to, to add. Lastly, we have Banyana Banyana, South Africa. This is South Africa's first appearance in the Women's World Cup. They are led by Janine Van Wick, who is an incredible Twitter follow. And I and they're she's just wonderful. They are coached by Desiree Ellis, who is one of the only female coaches in the continent. And they're very positive. Like, I, f- I follow them. I think they're an incredibly hyped team. Their fans are wonderful, very, very supportive. And this year, and I found out from Janine Van Wick's Twitter account, is the first time the women's side has actually been given corporate sponsorship. And they were given corporate sponsorship by a petrol company. And this is this is really notable because it, it was literally the first time and there's a lot of excitement for them going to the Women's World Cup. The other thing I, I was going to say was that the joy with which they bring 
football to the pitch is a different level. They're very they're a very athletic team, meaning they're very strong. They're very aggressive on the ball. They tactically their formations are a bit are a bit different. They don't play a traditional style like a four four two or something like that. They really switch it up. I think one of the first times I've ever seen five on the back line was by South Africa. So I, I'm really interested to see how they you know measure up to the other teams. This is a pretty strong group in the sense of it's not the strongest in terms of rankings, but I expect to see some really interesting changes here in terms of how they're going to go forward. I don't like saying this, like, you know, what's the weakest group uh, team in the group, but I feel like at this point, South Africa, I'll phrase it this way, South Africa are the underdogs here. Now, they're also coming into this with nothing to lose. They will bring their joy. They will bring their passion. And I really hope to see Bubuzelas because I love them and I think they're great. Hopefully, one of the matches that I get to see is South Africa versus China. So I'm really excited about that. I also, I think I forgot to mention who's coaching Germany. So I'll just say that they're being coached by Bertina Voss Tecklenburg and captained by Alexandra Pop. I think that they will be really exciting to watch. I expect a lot of technical football from Germany. Now, I also expect Germany to go through and China to go through like with relative ease. So that is group B. And the last thing I'm going to say about this group is their kits are dope. <laughs> <laughs> Linz, did you want to add something to Shireen's breakdown here? Yeah, first of all, oh, I just learned so much. But I just, so she was talking about how South Africa has really been kind of fighting against their federation for any sort of resources. This got so extreme that after qualifying for the 2018 Women's Africa Cup of Nations, they protested because they didn't even receive the stipends that they were supposed to get uh, from the South African Football Association. And then the South African Football Association, so they decided to not send, not return their kits. So didn't return any of their uniforms. And South Africa then docked that the kit cost from their net pay. So we just got to really support these women because they're incredible. And I have one question. So Spain, so last World Cup, uh, after they didn't make it past the group stages, they all released an open letter requesting that their manager, uh, Kareda, be fired and really exposing a lot of the toxicity that had been in that program for decades, really. So Shireen or Brenda, like, have we seen improvements in the past four years? Like, are things better? I'll just feel this really quickly because there's one thing I forgot to say and I can weave it in. South Africa are also uh, runners up with, with the uh, with AFCON. They lost to Nigeria. So the thing is, is that I don't think we always see a sort of like a progressive up words movement from federations federations are pushed and they're only pushed when teams like end up in results now the fact that south africa and nigeria both were treated so poorly by their federations on a recent hot take with brenda and stephanie that i did in new york we talked i talked about this that nigeria specifically in the football federations of south africa did not pay their players despite their amazing performances and i don't i'm not going to be hopeful and say that I think there's um, like a steady upward movement in this regard. I think that the players are having to do all the work and the fans are speaking out and that's creating the shift. I don't think there's any positivity coming from federations. I have no faith in men. <laughs> but so even with Spain, though, like are things better with Spain? Spain has been, Brian, you might want to feel this too, because I know we've had a couple of conversations about 
Spain and the gong show that is in women's Yeah, I football. mean, I mean, the women that did that protest, they really did so at the detriment to their international careers. They haven't been called up. It did result, I mean, they were older, but still. They did. It did result in a change in coaching. Uh, the previous coach was there, I believe, twenty eight years, which would be fine if he and he had like had a thirty eight percent winning record. Ever. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's like staggering. Yeah, it's it's a long time to keep a job that you're really bad at. Oh, terrible, terrible. terrible. So, I mean, I think I think yes, things are better, but I don't think they could have really been worse. <laughs> well said. <laughs> I'm so rosy. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Shereen. Group C is an exciting group. It's got some crowd favorites, Australia, Italy, Brazil, and Jamaica. Jamaica is the first Caribbean nation to qualify for a Women's World Cup. It's really exciting. And I know that, you know, people we've had um, different members of the team, Nicole McClure, on the show, and I know that here at Burn It All Down, we're really excited for the reggae girls. Their lack of support from the Federation and CONCACAF has meant that Jamaica has been largely funded by Bob Marley's daughter. It's true. Um, (laughs) Lovely lovely as that is, it shouldn't be the case that you need, you know, a celebrity to do this. This is a national team. But we're really excited for them. It will be a challenging group for them to get out of, as it will be for Italy. Italy has really also, kind of like France, had a a pretty sort of exponential growth in its women's league. Now, Italian women had already had some of the earliest leagues in the 1960s that were incredibly popular, And when those leagues had organized independently, they had more success. When they were integrated into FIFA and into the Italian Federation, they sort of stagnated. So it's interesting to see a kind of uptick again, particularly in Juventus. The Italian captain, Sarah Gama, uh, she's of Congolese descent and she's super cool defender. And I think she's worth watching. I'll be really interested to see how she defends versus Australia and Brazil in particular. So there's that. I, I would expect they also have a big challenge getting out of this group. But you never know, as Shireen said, like you can't count anybody out. Out really. Um, the two that most people think are likely to go forward, Australia and Brazil, they have an ongoing rivalry. Um, and the last Women's World Cup in Canada, Australia knocked Brazil out 1-0. And it was a really difficult and disappointing World Cup for the Brazilians and a very exciting and promising World Cup for the Australians. So they, they're going to meet again. It should be really exciting. Australia, everyone's going to be watching Sam Kerr. I know she's a big hit here at Burn It All Down, too. The 25-year-old phenom who's already the NWSL's all-time leading scorer, plays for the Chicago Red Stars, and seems like an all-around badass good person as well. <laughs> you know, indigenous heritage, mm-hmm. right, Shereen? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I love her. I love Sam Kerr so much. Yeah, yeah. I love Sam. I think I'm loving Sam Kerr too. And that's not easy for me because I traditionally do not love Australian sports because they're really racist and stuff. And then we have Brazil, of course, my personal 
sort of favorite. But in a recent hot take that Shereen and I did um, with Stephanie Young, which she mentioned before, something that Stephanie said that really has been sort of haunting me the last few days and because I've been thinking a lot about this team is just how worried you are when you watch them play. It's just like, you know, the Federation is waiting for a reason to deny them even more resources than they already do. And actually, after the Olympics, after the fourth place finished, the Federation said they were thinking about cutting the women's program altogether. Jesus, Like, what even is that? And I mean, for a very long time, they've been the only team from the global south to be in the top echelons of women's soccer. So it is really depressing to see this happen. They have an amazing team, just have to say. Um, you know, they do not lack talent. They never lack talent. You should keep your eye on Dabinia. I mean, there's always Marta, but Dabinia always plays really well for the national team, even better than the Courage, in my opinion. Um, Tamiris is always in top shape. They could basically field 10 forwards. Like, I mean, there's just, it's ridiculous. They had 13 scorers, I believe, in the qualifying, in the in, in the tournament that lasts just two weeks. So um, they're always fun to watch, but I'm, I'm very worried about the general state of their convening. They're headed to Portugal next week, and we'll see what they can do. I was just going to say that that, like what Brenda just said, that's the stress at a lot of the thinking about a lot of these federations and a lot of these squads going into the Women World Cup is how much pressure for just basic sustainability is placed on winning. And I think about this in counterdistinction to when, you know, we look at the men's you know, teams or whatever, where it's just like, given, of course, we're going to invest in and throw support behind this team. And I look at so many of these squads that we're talking about, and it feels like they're playing for so much more than themselves, because they're playing for the future uh, and support of women's sports in general. And every every loss is you know potentially giving fuel and ammunition to people for detractors and to you know, to further the justification of defunding or not paying or not supporting um, these amazing athletes. And even in, and that's from places from the global South that Brenda just mentioned all the way up to, if you look at the text of the lawsuit that the U S women's national team filed so much as that predicated that of that is on winning. And it's just very stressful for me personally to, to think about that kind of pressure that so many of these squads are playing under. Amira, totally in terms of pressure to perform, particularly when you've got individual players that are singled out. And what federations often do is they sort of piggyback on the success of individual players. And that's equally problematic. And like, just for example, South Africa has Tembi Kaget Luna, who is amazing and she's a superstar. But it's almost like the federation rallies around one or two players, which is also problematic because the whole point is to support the team and the, the program. And that's not what we see happens. And then there's extra pressure on those individual players, which very interestingly, Ada Hergerberg has avoided <laughs> completely by not going. And this feeds into it because if they don't win, they're penalized. And if they win, they're still not given what they're due. So the whole thing is a gong show. Gong show, it may be, but it's a gong show we are excited to see.
Now we have a very special interview with Brazilian legendary player, Sissy. I'm thrilled today to get to talk once again to Sissy, the amazing legendary Brazilian women's player who is now youth director and coach at Walnut Creek and also assistant coach for Solano College. She was the 1999 Golden Boot winner and has about a million awards. Sissy, thank you for joining me today. Thank you, Brent, for having me. I just wanted to start really quickly. It's coming up on the 20th anniversary of the 1999 World Cup, which is seen as one of the glorious moments in the history of the women's game. Could you tell me a little bit about what your memories are or what your your when you look back, what you think of? Oh, my gosh, that is a lot of good memories. I think it's, uh, of course, besides losing to us <laughs> of course because every every time when especially when i have to talk to my friends about 99 especially here in the united states they always like yeah but you guys lost to us okay that's fine uh, but you know it was probably one of the most i'll say the best experience of my life with the national team with that group and i it, it's funny because right before we had to go for the training camp. I had a bad injury and I'm not supposed to even play that year if I have to follow uh, my doctor's instruction because basically I'm supposed to have a surgery and I say there is no way for me to have a surgery because I knew something special was on the way. I can't, I don't know how to describe that, but I had that feeling that's something special. And I said, sorry, but I can't have any surgery right now. So I had, you know, broke bones on my face, playing futsal. And he said, sorry, but you got to go. You have to have surgery. I said, no, I, that is no way. So I, I went to the camp and I had to basically lie to the doctors because nobody knew besides my, you know, closest friend, friends. But I went to the training camp Nobody knew exactly what was going on. Of course, you know, I had before that black eyes. It was it was it was bad. I had to go to the emergency room and everything. And why when the doctor came back and say, you know, we you gotta go straight to the we gotta have surgery. I said, no, no that is no way. So I went to training camp and we came to United States and things start to like happen, you know, and I was never a player that score a lot of goals before because my job was to be the playmaker, to build the, the plays and have the vision off the field. That's always my job. But I was never like a finisher. And things start to happen, you know, for me. And it was unbelievable. And I remember well enough that even like talking to the players afterwards, especially girls from uh, like Brandy, there was always a question mark, are we going to be able to sell tickets? You know, so it was when we start to see like people coming to the games, I couldn't believe it. Like, oh my gosh, this is happening. You know, it was, it was thrill to go be on the bus, go to the state and you see that much people come and watch our game. It was unbelievable. So it was definitely one of the best experiences that I ever had in my whole life. And 
not even as a soccer player, but with the national team, the group was very special for me. We had the same common goals and it, it was it was beautiful to watch after. And especially now to see that much, to see how much, you know, the, the people come into the games and the final, especially, it was, I was speechless. You know, even though we play for third place, but to see all the, who play, who had the chance to be part of that, I don't think they're ever going to forget that. And I have to say, I, I cry walking, leaving the locker room to go to to the field. And, and you look around, I, I felt like lost. <laughs> it was, it, I was, yeah, yeah, definitely was the best experience. So I was very fortunate to be part of that. Do you remember any one of the goals in particular that was your favorite? You know, of course, the the goal that I score against Italy, I score one with my left foot, one with my right foot, and it was it was my first time scoring a goal with my right foot. But the goal against Nigeria, I that feeling, you know, winning three zero, and they tie three three. We go to the overtime, the first golden goal, women's history. So I. Scoring that goal, running through the fans, I almost took my shirt off. <laughs> that sensation, you know, all the sacrifices, all that, the weight. I, I don't know. It was, that goal was special. All the goals that I score, definitely each one was special for me. But the last, that one against Nigeria was probably one of the best on my career. And on everything, because, you know, I'd say there is no way we're going to stop right here. We still have a lot to show. So, but I say there is no way for, you know, we're not going to Nigeria took that moment from us, but it was a, a very crazy game overall. Did you feel like people in Brazil got a big message that women's football was was sort of here to stay in Brazil? A little bit. I think here I got the sensation that, yes, now we are moving forward. In Brazil, not so much. When we came back, we had maybe few people that came to, to the airport. It was, again, it doesn't matter the number for me because I was like, oh my gosh, this is the first time we have people to come and waiting for us, you know. At that point, it was not about the quantity, but it was more, yes, they're here. They finally start to understand, yes, we can do this. We don't try to compete against men's, you know. So that's not exactly what we are trying to. We we want to make sure we still have our space. We want to show that we can play, but it was not like have the feeling living United States, you know what I mean? Because you you knew at that moment, oh my gosh, that's unbelievable. We can do this. So yeah, people pay attention more because we have a message to deliver. So, but in Brazil, it took time and it's been like that. So every time we have a competition, people talk, you know, everybody got excited. But after that, we're going back to the world war. It's, it's, not, it's not like when Brazil is, preparing for a men's World Cup is, is very different. So who knows? 
Right. I have a question that is not really as political as it is just about your game. And I've watched a lot of those old uh, footage. I've always thought of you as an attacking midfielder. And as you said, a playmaker. But you didn't wear eight, which is frequently what we think of as like the signature Uh South American, right? Number. So why 10? Let's go back like in... When I start playing professionally for the first time at age 14, my first coach said, you're going to be a number 10, but I do not have an idea what means we're number 10. Of course, I knew about Pelé, you know, and basically all the players that I start to like, they were all number 10s, you know, Pelé, Zico, all those players that I I say, oh my gosh, they're so brilliant. They, they, the way they play, um, so he said, you're going to be number 10, but, but it was not like an explanation why I should be. And I finally start to understand more later, but it always came with the pressure because they always, people say, oh, the best players always going to work, you know, number 10. And it was not the case. It was more, okay, you're going to be the number 10 because that's the, the playmaker. You know, that's the player that are very, they, they are different. I like, but I never look at myself of being different, you know? So, but that's what, after I start to have a better understanding and, and it took time because I knew it came with a lot of pressure and people trying to compare me with, you know, those guys. And I didn't want that. I want to be myself. I didn't want to be people trying to compare me with, you know, Oh, that's Pelé. That's, that is, that's no way. I say, I want to create my own identity. But I, yes, I was that attacking midfielder, that player that is going to make things happen, the player that have the freedom. I didn't have a lot of responsibility of the, I was never good on defending, but I even they have to adjust my game. But that was the case. For me, they say, here, go ahead. But at the beginning, I didn't know. I start to have maybe, and I accept more later on, but I didn't want people always to compare me with those guys, or even though I was, they were my idols, but I say, that's going to be me. So, but it was nothing, you know, with eight, it was more that 10 and that's what you're going to be. And we still, it's funny because I don't see a lot of players like that anymore, even on women's soccer, you know, and that's what I tried to create here. I say, can we create that number 10 again? Because, you know, even Marta, Marta is more a finisher, but Marta is not a playmaker. And but we were the opposite. My game was very different than hers. So I still feel I, I still, I have, you know, I still missing that, that, that player, you know, even on men's um, watching Brazil. I don't think Neymar is the playmaker either. And that's what I try to create here, you know, to my team. I say, can I create that number 10? And it's been very difficult because it's not easy. So, friends, you see, I don't know if you're ever going to see a play like you, you know. Uh, the game changed so much. But, yes, I do miss that player, players that I You miss that version before. of number 10. I do. I really do. We still have, you know, again, they always compare me with Mata, but we are very opposite. Besides being lefty, but, you know, yeah. Mata is more a finisher. She dribbles more. I I was more, my game was more, okay, create plays, 
you know, see the whole field, have the vision, very different. And how do you think you've been a, a very successful futsal player as well? Do you think that was really important in shaping you? Yes. I think I was a better futsal player than, honestly, futsal helped me so much because it's a tight space. You got to think very fast. It's a lot of movement off the ball and there's a lot of thinking, you know, it's a lot of decision making, but it helped me with my touches as well. So futsal, sometimes you don't have time on the ball and that helped me so much. And when I was, you know, of course, on the soccer field, it was a little bit different. But I, I enjoy because it's allowed me to be thinking all the time. And I can hear you snapping. Yeah, <laughs> You're like, snappy, snappy. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, I play for many years in Brazil. Even here, I enjoy when I have to play four versus four, you know, example, in a tight space. And I think that's where the creativity came from. Futsal is and now is here, it's growing. Yeah. Um, so in the US, you mean in California? Yes. And I'm trying to incorporate this in, in our program to make sure the girls play futsal because it's very important. And when your team, when the 99, that generation of Brazilian players, when most of them were born, there was a legal ban on women playing football in Brazil and playing soccer in Brazil, which is pretty unique. But it seems as though that didn't get in any of your way. No, no, not my way at all. I, of course, you know, I was born in very small town. Everybody knew each other. It was me and playing with boys. But I play on, you know, a lot of times it was me playing with my dad and my brother until I had access to playing with boys. But I, it was me doing a lot of training on my own. Because, but I, I start with my doll's head for you to know. And my first soccer ball was my doll's head because my, my brother, and my dad said, oh, what, what are you doing? You know, you shouldn't be playing soccer. I'm like, who cares? So I was very persistent. I did not let, again, say, you cannot do this. My mom say, you know, there is no future. But I heard about this law and I say, who cares? I'm in the middle of nowhere. Who's going to pay attention to that? Esplanada. Exactly. For people who, so who don't know, Esplanada. Brazil. Exactly. So when I moved to, my dad got a new job. We have to move to a different city. You know, and again, here we go again. And I finally saw the first girl playing soccer. And it was in Campo Formoso. Again, in the middle of nowhere. And I start to like, okay, now finally I can do something. I have to be... You know, but it still, I, it, I had to be with playing with the boys and I got in trouble a lot because of that. But luckily, uh, I heard about there was this team in a, a, this different city one hour from where I was living. And they say, oh, they are looking for players. So I finally said, OK, let's go. And I joined this team, first organized team in Ciudad de Bonfim, one hour from my city. And that's when I started to playing. You know, I, I heard a lot of things about the Hada that was from Rio de Janeiro. I heard about there was this team in Rio and I said, that's it. And my mom like, again, my goal for you is to make sure you're going to finish your, you're going to finish school, you're going to be a teacher. I'm like, 
no way. That's not going to happen. I want to become a professional soccer player. I want to play for Brazil. And that's it. And I had that. It was already inside of my head. That's what I want to do. And the 14, that's 14, play a double header. This team came from Feira de Santana. And we play, they, he brought men's and women's uh, soccer. We play a double header. He's like, okay, can you, do you want to join? And I say, you got to talk to my parents. <laughs> he drove to my house, talked to my parents, my mom. That is no, what? 14 years old? You think that you're going to leave? I say, yes, I will. You got to let me. And my dad at the point, he, he knew this girl, she was born with a gift. Even though my, my dad's dream was for my brother to become a professional soccer player. And my brother said, no, I'm, I'll not do that. Not because he wants to. So I'd say, you got to let me go. You, you got to let me go. And I say, I'll promise I'll finish school. I'll go to school every day, but please let me go. And that's when I left. Sissy, thank you so much for being on Burn It All Down. And go Brazil! Okay, as excited as we are about soccer, there's a whole lot going on with women's basketball. Linz, do you want to take us through some of the exciting news? Yes. So first of all, I want to put pressure on myself and say we will have a hot take this week, kind of diving deep into this entire WNBA season, doing a lot of uh, preview work. So hold me accountable, flamethrowers, on that. But we want to talk briefly about two bits of exciting news in the WNBA this year, this uh, week, excuse me. First of all, there is a commissioner and not just a president, a commissioner. For the first time in WNBA history, there is a leader with that title. And so that is really important. It is Kathy Engelbert, who is not going to start until July 17th because she is finishing up her run as the first woman to ever lead a big four professional services company. And she's currently the CEO of Deloitte. So there's a lot of excitement around this hire. She used to actually play basketball at Lehigh for Muffet McGraw. So she's been heavily involved in women's basketball for years. <laughs> she also knows so much about business and about marketing. I talked to Elena Deladon this week at practice and she seemed really optimistic about this hire. And so that's really great news. And also Liz Cambage is going to be in WNBA this year. The trade is done. So exciting. She was traded from the Dallas Wings to the Las Vegas Aces. So she didn't get the Sparks, which was her top choice. But I think we can all agree that it seems like Vegas and Liz will be a really good fit. (laughs) So that is really exciting news. The trade was for four pieces. So a first and a second round draft pick for next year. The Wings, I mean, the Aces gave up those. And they also traded Mariah Jefferson, former UConn guard, and Isabel Harrison, a former Tennessee center who wasn't in the WNBA last year. So these are, you know, some pieces that Dallas can really help rebuild around. And they have a lot of really uh, team-friendly contracts uh, on their books. So I honestly think that this is going to work out really well for everyone. And I, I can be excited. Uh, Jess, I know you've been following this. What are what are your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I'm really thrilled for Cambage. She had these sort of very sad, almost Instagram stories early in the week uh, when the trade was 
looked like it was going to happen. And then it looked like it wasn't going to happen. And uh, you just feel for her. I mean, the season is starting this week. So this is so late. I just keep thinking about what these women work under, like these conditions where everything is happening like this. Because I mean, she's in Australia, right? So she's flying back, I assume, any second now. Um, But it's thrilling. Like the idea of her and Asia Wilson on the same team, like I am looking forward to those Instagram <laughs> stories. I think that's going to be amazing. Yeah, and they have so much height on their squad. Like. Yeah, so much height. I mean, I love Kayla McBride. I think uh, she's just such a phenomenal shooter to see all them together. You know, I'm thinking a lot about the Wings. They're the closest team to me. So I think about them a fair amount. You know, they also got Amani McGee Stafford from the Dream this week. And, you know, I don't think anyone, it's hard to imagine anyone really replacing. Liz Cambage, right? Like she's just so damn dominant and so good and so tall. But, you know, it will be interesting with Mariah Jefferson and Isabel Harrison and Imani Mickey Stafford and uh, you know, Skylar Diggins Smith. We she just had a baby boy. Uh it's not clear exactly when she'll be back, of course, uh, the way those things work. But it'll be interesting to see what they these guys are able to do together underneath Agler, who's their new head coach. You know, he has a really great uh, history with LA. But you know, I was listening to either the WNBA Insider or WNBA Weekly. I can't remember which podcast, so I apologize for that. They're both great. But they mentioned how now the West is totally stacked. And I thought that was a really interesting point. So the West now has Phoenix and Seattle, which of course, you know, we're dealing with like Tarasi out in Phoenix, and uh, Brianna Stewart out in Seattle, but still Phoenix and Seattle, LA, and the Aces, the Wings will be playing in that side. And then the other side on the East, I don't know how you feel about this, Lindsay, but Really, I feel like I don't know where the sun are now that Shanae Agumake has left the, the Lakers, but you know, the two dominant teams on that side are Atlanta yeah. and yeah. the Mystics, right? And so, you know, that leaves the She left for the Sparks, not the Lakers, but yes. Oh, I thought I said LA. <laughs> oh shit. I meant to say LA. And so on the East, you know, now that all they really have, all we really have as far as like power teams are Atlanta and Washington, because now that Shanae Aguamake has left for LA, uh, I don't know where the sun are. And then the other teams are the Chicago Sky, Indiana Fever and New York Liberty, which are three teams that really struggle. So it does really seem like this, this season's going to be about the West. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But also the sun are going to be really good. John Quall Jones, one of the big reasons that the sun were even looking at trades for Chanae Agumake was because last year they had John Quall Jones, who has like, I think MVP potential coming off the bench. <laughs> and, you know, there was, there was really kind of a backlog of talent. So you're going to have John Quall Jones. I think this is going to be a superstar year. She looks really good. Last year she had, a, she had some visa issues and really had a rough start to this the beginning of the year. I don't think we've ever gotten a full story there, but she didn't come to training camp or didn't come into the season in great shape. And then, you know, coming from the bench really never got going. But I think that we're going to see, you know, her really take flight. And it's important to remember that while the East West impacts scheduling a little bit, like I think the East teams play each other, it doesn't actually impact anything in the playoffs. Everything is rejiggered for the playoffs. So there's no East versus West in the, in the WNBA playoffs. It's seated one through eight, no conferences taken into impact. So I think really you're just going to see so much star power. Emma Mieseman is back for the Washington Mystics, which is really great news. And I really do think with Dallas, I know everyone's a little doom and gloom right now, 
But it is so hard to build your franchise around an international player because they're going to be out, right? They're, they're just, they're going to miss time for international commitments. I mean, this year, Miesemann's going to be back. She's going to be gone for another month for Euro uh, basket competition, like, you know, in the middle of the season. So if the, if the Mystics didn't have Deladon, you know, as a constant, they'd be in really big trouble. So I think like, the aces are much better suited to handle a the ups and downs of an international star like Liz Cambage, whereas, you know, the wings really need to build a much more solid core. And I think they, they can do that. You know, it's going to be a couple years, but I think like they're on a good trajectory. I'm just excited. Amira? Yeah, and I just wanted to remind everybody um, how you can watch the WNBA. So first of all, they have an amazing league pass that is only sixteen ninety nine, or you can just follow one team for under $10. And this is a tremendous value for all of the basketball you get to see. They also, of course, we've covered on the show have entered into a new deal with CBS Sports and have expanded coverage on ESPN ABC. So in total, there's about 75, 76 games that will be available via live TV or streaming on Twitter, which is something they've done um, in the past and that they will return to for at least 20 games this season as well. And so implore everybody who wants to see what your closest team are or pick a team that you like and want to get behind. I know the, the Aces have... <laughs> a really great Twitter following um, that Shay has kind of ripped up into ridiculousness. And, you know, pick a team, get league pass, watch on Twitter. I think that, you know, where to watch is is vitally important to know and, and spread the word. Shireen? I wanted to just add about uh, Liz Cambage. I follow her on Instagram and actually her Instagram gives me life. And I wanted to say that the trade from Dallas meant a lot to her because she was sharing on her stories, very personal reactions. And I think it, I hate the fact that we talk about humanizing athletes, but she really gave fans an insight into how difficult this was for her. And one of the things that actually made me really happy is she posted to her Insta story when she had an exchange with Azrae Stevens, who we've actually had on the show. I interviewed her last year and the exchange, although she was leaving Dallas Azrae gave her like big hugs and was like, I can't wait to block you. And there was so much joy for her teammates, for her, even though she was leaving that team, chose what, how committed they were to each other's happiness and, and what's good for her. And like my prayers, just this be good for her. She deserves so much. And she's been so honest with all of her, like her fans and supporters of the game about what this journey has been. And I didn't know how arduous and taxing it was on her and you know not everything we see on social media is beautiful shocking I know so I just wanted to send that love and solidarity solidarity out to those players that really struggle and thank you to Liz for giving us that insight into what it's really like to be stuck in a trade limbo and now it's time for everybody's favorite segment the burn pile this is where we put all of the things that we've hated in sport this week in a tremendous pile to set a flame. Amira, you want to start us off? Sure. I want to talk about Preakness. So Preakness is a horse race. <laughs> the 144th Preakness was done this past weekend in Baltimore. And I want to talk about 
where it takes place. Preakness takes place in the Park Heights neighborhood in Northwest Baltimore. I used to live quite near it, about six minutes away. And Park Heights has a Black section and predominantly white Jewish section. And it's a very long road that stretches through Baltimore. So the racetrack is placed in the middle of the Black side of Park Heights. It's a neighborhood that is very under-resourced and over-policed, under-resourced. And once a year, all of these very rich white people come and gather in the middle of Park Heights. And a lot of people come and drink and have this whole celebration around this. And when you're watching this on TV, they'll only show you the infield. They'll only show you that. They don't show you the neighborhood. They don't show you anything else. And so there's a huge discussion now if Preakness is going to stay in Park Heights like it's been for you know the last 100 plus years, or if it's going to move to Laurel. And there's a great piece on The Undefeated by a fellow colleague, Stacey Patton, who's writing about this particular relationship that the Black community has with Preakness. But the thing that really irritates me about it is the investment in Preakness when you juxtapose it with the lack of investment in the surrounding neighborhood. Uh, to quote some one of the residents talking about it, they say, the white folks come here once a year to gamble, get drunk. Some of them come across the street, buy a little weed or some crack. The police just sit there and don't do anything because they get paid off. When the race is over, they get out of here before it's dark. They don't give a fuck about this neighborhood until the next year. And anytime I think about Preakness, you know, I look at Baltimore thinking about proposing all of this money and investment they are proposing to put into the track to keep Preakness in Baltimore. And so it doesn't move to Laurel. And I watched them do this, you know, when they revitalized Inner Harbor for like one of these NASCAR indie races. And they spend millions of dollars on boosting sporting infrastructure to keep these things in, in Baltimore, despite the fact that they won't spend a dime. They put no resources into helping the surrounding areas and not helping in a gentrifying way, but like sincerely caring about these Black neighborhoods. And it's really irritating for me to see, particularly with Preakness, because I know the area. I used to get the best Jamaican food right there, you know, on the corner next to the next to the track. And fucking... Really? Yes. I don't think Jamaican food when I think there's like a, horse races. So that's awesome. <laughs> well, the Jamaican food is from the community, the black people in the community who are cooking the soul food, Jamaican food, whatever. The horse race just happens to be one weekend in which all of a sudden white people show up and discover this part of Baltimore. And so, you know, I just, I hate it. I hate it. And I want to burn it down. Burn. burn. Jess? Yeah, so I'm just piggybacking right off of Amira's to talk about the Preakness. You know, it, it was a big story. Will, War of Will won, but then was upstaged by Bodhi Express, who this horse that actually threw its jockey off right at the beginning and then actually ran the race without him. You know, cool, I guess. But the day before the race, Joe Drape of the New York Times wrote about horse deaths in racing. And I honestly don't understand how horse racing is still a thing. I've got to say, I don't know a ton about the sport. I I admit that. So maybe I'm missing crucial context here. If so, I guess I'd I'd like to hear it. But Drape's piece says that on Friday, the day before the Preakness, 
a three-year-old filly named Congrats Gal, died after pulling up and finishing last in the nine-horse field in the Miss Preakness Stakes, so literally at the Preakness, the horse collapsed onto the ground 100 yards after finishing. And then on the same day, across the country at Santa Anita Park in Southern California, quote, a three-year-old gelding named Commander Coyle became the 24th fatality at the racetrack since December 26th, a turn of events that had already that already had suspended racing at the track twice and threatened to close down the sport in the state forever. The fatality was the first since March 31st at Santa Anita, which announced a ban on the use of medication and whips on racing days after the 22nd death. And then Drape drops this bit in there, quote, nearly 10 horses a week on average died at American racetracks in 2018, according to the Jockey Club's equine injury database. That fatality rate is anywhere from two and a half to five times greater than in most of the racing world. Apparently, the U.S. is terrible at regulating the drugs that get pumped into these horses. I don't know how you can read all of this and and make sense of any of it. I know that our sports are unkind and often dangerous to humans who play them. We talk about that all the time on this podcast. But involving and killing horses seems particularly cruel. Ten horses a week on average. I want to burn this. So burn. Lindsay? Yeah, so very different turn here. This week on Friday afternoon, the House of Representatives passed the Equality Act, which was a historic bill written to guarantee non-discrimination protections for LGBTQ people at the federal level. It did pass through the House with a vote of 236 to 173. It will go to the Senate where it is not expected to pass, but there will be debate. And if it's anything like the debate that was going on in the House during the hearing before the vote, it is going to be ugly, ugly, ugly. What I want to particularly burn is the way that opponents to this bill were all Republicans were using a feigned concern for the future of women's sports in order to launch transphobic attacks against this bill. You had literally, you had representatives on the floor saying, the threat that this bill possesses for women's sports at every level is profound. One woman, Representative Debbie uh, Lasko from Arizona, said the Equality Act will eliminate eliminate women's and girls sports by requiring that men and boys be allowed to compete in women and girls sports. Of course, they're not talking about men and boys participating in women and girls sports are talking about trans women participating in women's sports in a heartbreaking turn, which is something that we've discussed on this show in the past. Uh, Martina Navratilova's own words were used to back uh, the denouncing of this bill. As we know, she has been very outspokenly against trans women competing in sports on the elite levels. And she seems completely uh, jaw dropped, shocked and outraged that her words are being used to prevent all trans women and girls from participating in sports. But Martina, you should have seen that coming. Um, in the words of Democratic uh, Representative Katie Hill from California, I'd like to say no trans person is trying to game the system to participate in sports. That does not happen. And that is a sad scare tactic that is no place on the floor of the people's house. I can't believe that we're standing here and having a man tell me what kind of protections I need in sports. 
Thank you, Katie. Thank you to everyone who is fighting for this bill and burn everyone who is pretending to care about women's sports just to deny LGBTQ protections to people. Burn. Mine is short and unsweetened. Vajau, the coach of the Brazilian national women's team this week, on May 16th, he held a press conference. It's one of the first sort of live press conferences where they announced the roster of uh, women's World Cup team. And in the process, he stuck his foot in his mouth about a thousand times, showed absolutely no capacity for thinking strategically, nor any evidence that he's done any scouting whatsoever. But in addition to all of that garbage, he also said that one difference between coaching men and women is that women are much harder to calm down in the locker room. Yeah, (laughs) right. Thanks a lot, leader. That's really inspiring. I'm sure those uber, uber, uber talented women, including the most decorated woman player of all time, Marta, loves to hear that kind of bullshit before they follow you into what's supposed to be their redemptive World Cup. I'm seething. I just really, I just, I don't even know what to say, except that he should be ashamed of himself and the Federation should be ashamed of themselves for appointing him and continuing to appoint him. I don't even know how to control my anger at this, but he literally looked like he wasn't really sure about how to pronounce some of the newer players' names or if he got it right. Like, he just really looked like he didn't even know what he was doing. Again, he has a really spotty record, even coaching men. His claim to fame is that he was the personal coach of Kaká. So, you know, whatever, whatever, I'm throwing his... That's that's yeah. his claim to yeah. fame. I mean, he is like he, he is like a marginally okay record with B League men's teams. But I just want to in just throw the most recent comments on the burn pile and his just general apathy. I mean, maybe he's great in some personal private space that I am not privy to, but in public, this guy just sucks. So I want to throw him <laughs> proverbially on the burn pile. Burn. Burn. Shireen. Hi, I'm burning proverbially. Um, the Board of Cricket in India, BCCI, not to be confused with a now defunct bank. What I'm going to do is just sort of really quickly radio what we know, the lack of funding to support the women's teams in the India Premier League of Cricket. Now, the tournament for the men is just sort of wrapped up last week. But what ended up happening, there was so little money and attention put on into the women's team. And we're talking about women like Harman Kaur, like Mithali Raj, that we've talked about, that have been badass women of the week on the show previously. These are like world-class top players, sort of not getting the attention from a federation. So for, you know, I know we always burn football federations, but we're actually going to burn a cricket federation for being equally as atrocious, despite the fact that there's new viewers and children and women watching India's cricket, despite the fact that there's actually no fully functioning women's league in India that's consistent, unlike Australia or England, where but you still have incredibly high-performing, fantastic athletes that they're just not getting the attention, the support, and the camaraderie that they actually deserve. There's actually this really great article I found on the wire about this, and I'll just I'll just uh, sort of 
quote it because I think this piece is really, really, really important about what's actually happening and happening. And it was, it's just that sort of the overview is it's by Parth Pandya. And this is for the wire and just sort of saying that, quote, women's games are all taking steps in the right directions to break the glass ceiling. And two ICC tournaments in the last couple of years have been a resounding success. And given the rising popularity of new age Indian superstars like Harman Pete and Smriti Mandhana, the BCCI's lackadaisical attitude towards opening up the field so far has been quite puzzling. Unquote. Now, the article is not kind to them, so I appreciate that. I really appreciate the fact that they're being called out as being an obstacle and they're stagnating the process of women's cricket in India, which is a world superpower in this sport. So I want to burn federations who don't give a shit. I want to burn the lack of support that these phenomenal athletes are giving. And I just want to take all of that and throw it on the burn pile. Burn! burn. After all of that burning and recounting of terrible things in sport, we do want to recognize and celebrate the badass women in sports this week. Honorable mentions go to the Fenerbahce women's basketball team, who won the Turkish Women's League, Kiki Burtons for winning the Madrid Open, beating Simona Halep in straight sets, Another one from tennis is Carolina Pliskova, who won the Italian Open in Rome, beating Johanna Conta. There are a lot of NCAA tournaments happening right now, so we want to do a hats off to all the women competing in the golf, in the tennis, in lacrosse, and softball championships. And that includes the Oklahoma Sooner softball team, which now has a record winning streak of 41, including Giselle Juarez's third no-hitter of this season. Also, Pakistan women's cricket team captain and bowler phenom Sanamir overcame a back injury and is now the world's most successful ODI spinner. Mir has seven four-wicket hauls in ODI cricket and her spinning in the ICC T20 Women's World Cup in 2018 was voted play of the tournament. Also, we cannot not mention Formiga called up for a record-setting seventh World Cup appearance on the Brazilian national women's soccer team. And can I get a drum roll? We we can do this. Come on. Okay. The badass women of the week go to Champion League Winners, Olympique Lyonnais. Yay! They beat Barcelona 4-1. Happy 30th birthday to Eugenie Le Sommer, who turned 30 on the day of her Champions League win. But most especially, we have to say, Ada Hergeberg with a huge hat trick and a big fuck you to FIFA's Women's World Cup. <laughs> what's good (laughs) okay now in the times of darkness and challenges we want to ruminate a little bit on what's good and recognize that this month is also mental health awareness month and although we often 
try to, you know, parse out what's wrong with the world, we also like to appreciate what's not. Lindsay, what's good in your world? What's good is I'm going to be really on brand here and just say getting back uh, last week to Washington Mystics practice and talking with all the players just has me so excited for this WNBA season. My schedule is going to be bonkers, but I feel just so lucky to be able to cover this league. And yeah, I'm just I'm super excited. Jess. Yeah, well, definitely the WNBA starting this week is very exciting. Shout out to my therapist. I went to see her yesterday. It had been a month. So I was something to deal with yesterday. But she's amazing. And I feel so lucky. And then of course, uh, I'm going to France in less than three weeks. And that's kind of where my brain is. uh, And I'm very excited. So that's what's good. Awesome. Shireen? I got Adidas sneakers as a belated Mother's Day gift. And I love them. They actually matched Josh Needle's sneakers. And speaking of which, in New York, which was incredible to be able to hold Brenda's hand while doing a hot take was wonderful. I wish I could hold all of your hands. And I know I sincerely mean this. Um, my third guy, Salahuddin, is actually in Regina, Saskatchewan this weekend for nationals for volleyball. I miss him and he's not leaving me enough voice notes, but that's okay. I also just want to say what made me happy was Pep Guardiola's um, props to the Man City women's team in a presser because uh, as of... Yesterday, the Manchester City men's side won the treble, so they won three major tournaments. And they said, This is the, and someone in the press court said to him afterwards, You know, this is the first time. He goes, No, it's the first time for the men. The women have already done it. So he basically pulled an Andy Murray, and that was like really unexpected because it doesn't happen in the world of football. So hats off to Pep. And that made me really happy. Cool. Um, I have to just piggyback off of Shireen's recollection of this past week in New York. Um, the NYU Institute for Public Knowledge brought Shireen and myself and also Josh Nadel, who I wrote the book Football Later with, which is out this week. And this week, and I had... Oh my God. I had not... This week? It, that is super great. And I That's had not great. seen Josh since world. we wrote the book. Like, we mm-hmm. didn't see each other the entire time we wrote a book. He moved to Greece, and I was in Argentina, and life was crazy. And it was really wonderful to be able to present with him. And on top of that, Shireen, holding my hand is always perfect. And um, Stephanie Yang, friend of the show, who who we've interviewed and had on here, I had never met in person. So I, she doesn't like a whole lot of public attention, but too, too bad, Stephanie. You're awesome. Amira. What's good in my world? It is, as of right now, recording two days till Gemini season, which means when this drops, we will be in the best time of the year. There are 15 days until my birthday. So that is very exciting. Anyways, um, also, my real what's good is that Samari had her uh, district-wide track meet. And it's like 10 elementary schools that dump onto the high school track. And she 
repeated her title in the 100 meter and the four by one and also picked up second in the 50 meter. And it's just such a joy to watch her run. Um, and since she had been fighting with me since birth about sports, like every time she would play softball or soccer, or whatever, she would just be doing dance moves in the field. And I was just like, how, why is this happening to me? But track is a sport that she really likes. Um, and she's really, really good at. And so that's been giving me absolute life this week. And that is my what's good. Aw, go Samari, go. We're all excited. That's it for this week in Burn It All Down. Although we're done for now, you can always burn day and night with our fabulous array of merchandising. So we want to remind you to visit our Teespring store, teespring.com backslash stores backslash burn hyphen it hyphen all hyphen down. Burn It All Down lives on SoundCloud, but can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. We appreciate your reviews and feedback. We really do consider all of your comments and suggestions. Please subscribe and rate. Let us know what we did well and how we can improve. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod and on Twitter at Burn It Down Pod. And you can email us at burnitalldownpod at gmail.com. Check out our website, www.burnitalldownpod.com. There we have previous episodes, transcripts, and a link to our Patreon. Once again, we appreciate those who have subscribed and will subscribe. I'm Brenda Elsie. On behalf of the entire Burn It All Down crew, burn on, but not out. (laughs) 